We continue in the book of Psalms. We're looking at Psalm 40, and we will finish this up today. We began that last week. It's a fairly lengthy psalm. It's nearing the end of the first official book of Psalms, which ends at chapter 41. And so just as a way of review, uh, for those of you that weren't here, and even for those of you that were here and can't always keep everything in line, the review we do is helpful for us to kind of get connected back to what we had talked about last week. And so as we looked at these first ten verses, there were several things that we identified in this. The first one is this, the Lord delivers. The Lord does deliver His people. We may not see it in the now, we may only experience in the eternities, but God does deliver His people. So as a reality of that truth, we are to be expectant. We are to be expectant that God is going to move in at the right time and do what only He can do because God hears us when we cry out to Him. Our cries out to God do not go unheard. You think about when you had young children in your home, perhaps a baby in a crib. When they began to cry at night, you would get up out of your sleep and you would be very attentive to that baby's needs. And in a similar way, God hears us when we cry and God does respond. We need to know that we know that God hears us and responds to us when we cry out to Him. As a result of that, we should praise Him. We should praise Him from the very depths of our hearts. It's very easy to gather an assembly of Christians and sing songs, recite words, maybe even say a prayer. But there's something different about what we say when it comes from our hearts as opposed to when it's only lip service because we're going through the motions of some kind of a religious experience. But we are to praise Him from our hearts so that others will hear of the goodness and the faithfulness and the work of God in our lives. Our experience with God is not to be a private event. It is not to be reserved for you and you alone. We are encouraged to share this reality with other people so they can come to know Him as we know Him, so they can be encouraged in their time of despair. And what they will hear is that ultimately, in spite of all that we face, we do trust Him. Do we really and truly trust Him? Well, if we do, we work it backwards from this. We should praise Him all the time as an expression of our faith in Him. And we praise Him because we can expectantly look for God's deliverance at the right time. The third thing that we saw in the first part of this psalm is the Lord blesses us. David says that the Lord blesses us with wonders, which are miracles that are far too numerous to count. And we talked about how God blesses us in our lives, and it would be impossible for us to be able to even write down all the ways that God has blessed us with. You think about your life, your 20, your 50, your 70 years, it would be impossible for you to write down all the ways that God has blessed you. In fact, I believe it would be impossible for you to write down all the ways that God has blessed you even in the last 12 months. Because many of the ways God blesses us, we don't even see. We aren't even aware. We take for granted the well-being that we have as we move about our lives, as we carry out our day-to-day activities. But the Lord blesses us with wonders or miracles that are far too numerous to count. As a result of that, we should commit ourselves to Him. Not externally, Not in a religious form of worship, a ceremony, a ritual, a rite. But internally, from the very depth of our being. And we do that by obeying what God has told us to do. 
You know, we all know something about what God wants us to do. There's an ever-increasing awareness of what it is that God wants us to do. But what we need to do is we need to be obedient to what we know. We don't get caught up in what we don't yet know. But we are obedient to what we know that God has called us to do. Obedience is the ultimate form of committing ourselves to Him. And it expresses, in my opinion, the truest faith and trust that we can have in God. Lastly, we looked at we should proclaim Him to all around us because He is good news. Now, we talk about the gospel message being good news, and it's true that it is. But I think this goes a step further than that. It goes a little bit deeper than that because God himself is good news. Not just what he does, but who he is. This fact that God is good news is not to be kept a secret for us and us alone, but we have a responsibility, a mandate, and even a privilege to share him with other people. Let me ask you this question. Do other people need to know the reality of who God is? Do Christians need to know the reality of who God is? Absolutely. We all need to be reminded. We need to be stretched. We need to be encouraged in remembering that God is who He is and will work on our behalf as He sees fit. So as we move into the last part of our passage of Scripture today, we're going to focus on verses 11 through 17 in Psalm 40. So follow along as we read God's Word to us today. David continues and says, You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. We see mixed in this last section two more major points we're going to look at. This is a mixture of a declaration of faith in God and a prayer, a request that David will make make to God based upon what he needs and what he knows about God. So number six in our outline, as we continue from last week, the Lord is faithful. You know, we ought to write that down on the fronts of our Bible. We ought to put a post-it note in our bathrooms, in our cars, when we're doubting, when we're wondering, when we're struggling with believing that God is faithful because it isn't hard for us to go astray when life isn't going the way that we would prefer. Verse 11, You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually praise me. Now, scholars who know the Hebrew language, who have devoted their lives to the study of the Psalms and of poetry, 
and who can read a psalm and instantly categorize it as a praise, as a hymn, as a lament, as a royal psalm. Those that have devoted their lives to the study of the Hebrew language differ on how they understand verse 11 to be read. Some believe that it is a part of a request that David makes to God. Others believe that it is a statement that David is making about God. Personally, I believe that David is making a declaration of what he knows to be true about God. But if it is a request, David is asking God to do something that he is already doing. I've often heard pray, I've often heard people pray that God would love them, that God would be gracious to them, that God would encourage them, that God would support them, that God would bless them. And the reality is, folks, is that God is already doing that. We don't need to pray for God to do that because that's consistent with who God is as our Father. It's consistent with what God does for us as His children. We don't need to pray for God to love us because He already does. We don't need to pray for God to lead us because He is leading us. We don't need to pray for God to be gracious to us and bless us because He's already doing that. He does this all the time. What we need to pray is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I would be made intimately aware of the way that God loves and God leads and God blesses and God provides. That's what we need to pray. God, I know you do that. I'm not seeing that. I pray that you would make me aware of the way that you are doing that. Let me read a few verses of Scripture for you. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 18 and 19 is a part of the prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus and the Asia Minor region. That we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You see, God is, Paul isn't praying that God would do that. Paul is praying that we would be aware of what God has already done for us. The height, the width, the breadth, the depth of God's love which surpasses our understanding so that we could be filled up to the full measure of joy in Him. See, that's independent of our circumstance. It's independent of our request. God does this because that's who He is. We don't need to pray that God would lead us because that's what God is doing. Psalm 23b. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. His Word is our guide. His Word is what leads us. And through the indwelling Spirit and His leadership, we know what God wants us to do and we follow by faith as a sign of obedience to the One that we love and trust. We don't need to pray for God's graciousness. We simply thank Him that He is gracious. Hebrews 4.16 Therefore, let us draw near with confidence, with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, God's grace and God's mercy is there. We just simply turn to Him to experience it. He doesn't dole it out as we ask for it. It's there in abundance for us. All we have to do is learn how to appropriate it by faith because God is gracious towards us. 
We don't need to pray that God would bless us. He's faithful to do that all the time. Paul would pray or say in Ephesians 1-3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has already done that. You think about the physical blessings that God has given to us in our health and meeting our physical needs and the blessedness that comes from our relationships with other people. God blesses because it is consistent with who He is. We don't need to ask Him to do these things. I believe we simply ask Him to make us more aware of the way He is doing that. I believe that David is making a definitive statement about what he knows to be true, that God is faithful, and he continues to experience this even in the midst of great difficulty. So what David states is that God is compassionate. The word compassion encapsulates grace and mercy. It describes what God does for us, which we are not deserving or worthy of. God is compassionate towards us. David says, You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. David is saying by faith, God, no matter what I'm going through, no matter how difficult this is, no matter how much it seems to me that my life might end today, I know you will not withhold your compassion for me. This is a declaration that David makes that is overflowing with confidence. I don't see a request. I don't see a doubt. I don't see any wavering in this. I see a firm statement that David makes. You will not withhold your compassion for me. Do you believe that to be true? Can you say that with the same kind of conviction that David would? So the question is, David has this very firm declaration in God's compassion towards him. But is that reserved just for David? Is it reserved for the apostles? Is it reserved for what we would consider to be the spiritually elite? No, it's not at all. It is for all of God's children equally without measure. His compassion will never be withheld from us. He doesn't give to us what we deserve His mercies are new every morning. I know that there are times when we end our day without getting cleaned up before the Lord spiritually, without confessing all of our sin, without dealing with the difficulties of walking in this world with holiness and the kind of virtue that we would prefer. And yet the very next morning, even though we've not confessed those things and repented from them, God's mercies are still new to us. But you know, it isn't until we bend our knee, we bow our hearts before Him, that we become aware of the mercies of God and giving us the breath to breathe. So much to enjoy in this life. Well, as David looks at his present situation, knowing that God will be compassionate towards him, he also says that you, O Lord, will preserve me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. If you've got your Bible open, I want you to circle or underline or mark continually. It isn't once and then a long pause or a big gap. It is continually that God will preserve us. David has confidence 
in these two attributes of God that he has identified, God's compassion, God's loving kindness. And so he celebrates here God's love and the truth of God that will preserve him. That word God's love here is the Hebrew word hesed. And the word hesed immediately would bring to mind the Jewish believer, the covenant that God made with his people all the way back in the book of Genesis, that he would have a binding love covenant with them that would last forever and forever and forever. This is the covenant that God has made with his children. He doesn't love us because we're good. He doesn't love us because we're faithful. God loves us because he is love. He has made an unchanging and an unwavering commitment to love us, not because we deserve it, but because that's who God is. His truth is also a component that will preserve David. And as we think about the attribute of God, about truth in general, what we need to say is that not only does God have truth, but God himself is truth. He makes truth. He decides truth. He determines truth. He defines it. He himself is truth. Anything that is contrary to the very person and nature of God has to be disqualified as being untrue. A lot of people want to celebrate the love of God, the mercy of God, and the graciousness of God. And they want to set aside the justness of God. Well, that's absolutely false. You can't parse out the attributes of God to fit your preferences or your circumstance because God is God. And just as He is loving and faithful and truth, He is also just. He's also righteous. Everything that He says... Everything that he does is immersed in his attribute of truth. Let's look at a few verses as we think about this. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled or stands firm in heaven. Forever, God's word will stand in heaven. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth. All that God has said is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. John 17, 7. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus himself is truth. He not only speaks it, he not only teaches it, he not only lives it out, but he is the epitome of truth. Now, the bottom line is we either believe this to be true about God, or we do not. He is either always true, or He is not. He is either the epitome of truth, or He is not. There is no fence, there is no middle ground. We either believe this to be true, or we do not. And I would go so far to say that if we do not believe that is true, we've got a big, big problem on our hands. David says that the covenant of love that God has made and this confident assurance that God is truth is what preserves him. Knowing God is love, knowing that God will not hold his love for me, knowing that God is true, these things will preserve me. That word preserve means to watch, 
to guard, to keep. God in his compassion and consistent with the truth is watching over you and I. He is guarding you and I. He is keeping and preserving, protecting you and I. David says that God's love and truth will continually preserve him, meaning that it is always true all the time and nothing will ever change that. It is the faithfulness of God that David celebrates, confident that it will anchor him all the days of his life. Do we believe that to be true? You see, it's a sad reality for those who don't believe that to be true because they don't have an anchor. When an anchor of a ship is not firmly entrenched in the ocean floor and it comes up and moves, that ship will drift about and eventually it will get into some very dangerous places. So we have to know that God is going to preserve us uh, consistent with his attributes of compassion and truth. Number seven, our last major item that we look at, because of this we should pray to him. Because God is the one that preserves us. Because God is truth, because God is compassion, because God is faithful, we should pray to him. So we pray for help physically. First part of verse 12, David says, For evils beyond number have surrounded me. Think about that. Evils beyond number have surrounded me. Now you and I don't face a literal enemy. Our building is not surrounded with those who would like to take our life. But our culture would be consistent with this, would it not? The evil that exists in our culture surrounds us, and we can feel absolutely overwhelmed by that reality. Now, it's possible that when David wrote this, that he was in the midst of a military campaign. It's possible that he was on the run for his life from Saul or from the overthrow of his son Absalom. Either way, David felt surrounded by his enemies, And they're so numerous that he can't even begin to imagine how many there actually are. David was in need of physical help. He needed God to intervene to do what David could not do for himself. And so he cries out, he prays that God would help him physically. David has no way out. I would assume that he would expect imminent death apart from the work of God. So David saw his own limitations. He knew he didn't have the capacity to fix his situation. And as I thought about that, it brought back to my memory the challenge that Paul had in his life. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God, Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. I want you to think about that. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power, his power, is perfected in our weakness. When Paul understood what that meant, his response was, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You see, when we are at our weakest, it's then that God becomes strong in our lives. When we don't need God, when we feel like we can do it on our own, we ignore the reality of God's indwelling presence and his ability and perhaps desire to come in and physically rescue us from what we need to be rescued from. This is harder for us to connect to 
because we don't face the physical enemies that David would have faced in his life. But in this verse and in this passage, we also see the need to pray for help spiritually. As we continue and look in verse 12, the second part of that, David says, My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. David says, My sin has overtaken me that I am not able to see. David was acutely aware of his sinfulness. It's very unlikely that David is referring to his living an overtly sin-filled life But David is simply aware of how unholy he is as he thinks about the person of God, the attributes of compassion and truth. And there is this great tension in David's life. He knows that he is thoroughly and utterly sinful. And in comparison to God, who is holy and perfect without flaw, who is majestic and glorious, David cannot compare Very interesting, I had a conversation recently with an individual who cannot come to grasp with the utter sinfulness that exists within their life. Suppose you were to grade yourself on a scale, zero being the wicked of wicked, a 100 being holy as holy. How would you grade yourself? About a 75. You see, if we can grade ourselves like that, we probably don't have as clear an understanding of the holiness and the majesty of God as we need. But here's what I want to say. God doesn't grade on a scale. The scale, the standard, is His perfection. David was very aware of that. He is not alone in that awareness. As we look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, the prophet Isaiah says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. This incredible appearance of God in the temple that Isaiah can see some semblance of ushers this response. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, because I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, we often say, boy, it would be incredible to see something like that. The transfiguration and the glory of the Lord encompassed the person of Jesus, and He shone like the sun. Peter and John were able to see that, and they said, boy, I never want to leave this. But you see, the response when we see that is, woe is me. I don't measure up. He is thoroughly holy, thoroughly glorious, unlike me in every way. David had an acute awareness of his sin. As Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, would reflect on this passage and on the Psalms in general, would quote from them and define the human condition of man and would say in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 13, 
as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. You see, this is who we are apart from the work of Christ. This is what we are being sanctified from. This is our, our true self apart from the continuing work of God in our lives. But you know, people have a tendency to look at a very foggy mirror and they see an image of themselves that they want to be true, but in God's standard, in God's view, is not true. And so we need to pray that we would see ourselves as God sees us, not so that we can beat ourselves up, but so that we can see the glory of His grace, so that we can be amazed at His mercy, so that we can be compelled to give ourselves to Him because of who He is and what He's done. David says that his iniquities have overtaken him to the point that he cannot see David says, I've lost perspective. I'm so aware of my sin. I've lost perspective of my situation. It's very common in the Old Testament and in the Jewish way of thinking that our sin is a correlation to our circumstances. It's not always accurate, but that was the perspective that they had. And so for David to be surrounded by his enemies, for him to be overwhelmed by his sin, he might be thinking, I don't see a way out of this. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. All I know to do is to pray and to cry out to you because he is completely overwhelmed. He says, they are more numerous than the hairs of my head and my heart has failed me. It's unclear what David is referencing here. It could be the enemies that surround him. It could be the overwhelming knowledge of his sinfulness. Either way, he's overwhelmed. It's his present reality. Literal enemies that have surrounded him and an overabundance of sin that can cause him to lose perspective, to have clarity about who God is and what God has done. David says, my heart has failed me. Another way of saying he's lost perspective. And so in this position, we pray for rescue. Verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Now this is kind of lost in the English translation. But when David says, be pleased, O Lord, he is basically saying, God, if it is your will, to deliver me from these physical enemies, please do that. But not my will, your will. David is not being presumptuous in God's deliverance. In God's deliverance, it's possible that he saw his enemies as some kind of a punishment for his sin, and so as he proclaims that God would not withhold His compassion from him, and that God would be faithful and preserve him, he's simply praying for God's will to be done in this particular situation. He has faith in the mercy of God, and so he asks for a quick rescue. He says, make haste, meaning now. Please, I can't wait any longer. I don't know how I'm going to go another day. I don't think I can take another step unless you do what only you can do. But not my will, God. Your will be done. That's a hard prayer to pray, isn't it? We don't like uncomfortable circumstances. We don't like those things that stretch us. 
We don't like those things that press us so forcefully that we don't know what tomorrow might bring. But it is in that reality we pray for God to rescue us if it is according to His will. Lastly, we pray for justice. I'm sorry, not lastly, there's one more after that. We pray for justice. Justice. Verse 14, Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. So in the face of this persecution and in the face of this potential assault, David simply prayed that God would avenge him and protect him and rescue him. In these two verses, David uses five words that are very, very similar in their meaning. And they express the work of God that David desired to see. He uses the word ashamed and humiliated, his enemies to be turned back and dishonored and to be appalled. And so what David, what David is asking for is for God's retribution on his enemies. The word appalled is the strongest in this collection and it means desolation. God, I am praying that you would absolutely destroy my enemies, that they would be laid low, that they would exist no more. Now, in this request, David understood that these were not personal enemies of his, per se, but they were enemies of the nation of Israel, and as such, they were, in fact, enemies of God. That term, aha, used here is typically reserved for a shout of joy and a jubilant experience. But here, David's enemies are using it as a tool for wickedness. They are going to shout with joy over David's death, over the demise of the nation of Israel, and a defeat to the God that David served. So make no mistake about it, as we looked at in Second Thessalonians, this position brings with it severe consequences. Paul's question was right on the mark. The great day of the Lord. Is it going to be a good day or is it going to be a bad day? Well, it depends, right? It depends on where we are in our walk with the Lord. As a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham and to the nation of Israel through him, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. Now, make no mistake about it, not every Israelite saw the curse of God enacted in their day, but God will be just. There's no doubt about that. This covenant that God made with Abraham is a binding covenant that would continue all the way through David's reign, and in many, many instances is still continuing today as God is faithful to the nation of Israel. We find a similar justness of God expressed and a portion of the scripture that Paul read this morning, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. God will defend His people. 
Period. Doesn't mean we're not going to suffer persecution. But God will defend His people. He will distribute His justice upon all of His enemies. And we are to pray for God's kingdom to come, for their destruction, and for our own eternal deliverance to be revealed to us. Now, we don't take joy in the destruction of God's enemy. We simply await for God's work to be completed in this world as He separates the sheep from the goat. We don't take great joy in that. I believe we're to be sorrowful over that reality. But we do pray for God's rescuing of His people and make no mistake about it, God will defend His people. Lastly, we pray for His glory. Verse 16. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Now this verse and the verse after it are a continuation of David's prayer for the justness of God to be revealed. To magnify the Lord means to make Him great. And for the believer, God's greatness is directly connected to the salvation that you and I enjoy. We celebrate our salvation as we work out our salvation in this world and we await the fullness of our salvation to be revealed to us on the last day. It is on the last day that the glory of God and the goodness of God and the reality of our salvation sets in in a way that you and I can't even begin to imagine or possibly understand. It is the culmination of our salvation that is going to be revealed on the last day, either when our physical life on this earth ends or when God brings human history as we know it to a close and ushers in eternity for all. When His timetable is complete, then the magnificence of God will be revealed, most especially to those of us who know Him and love him. The last verse, well, excuse me, one of the last verses in the passage Paul read this morning, 2 Thessalonians 1.10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints, God will be glorified in his saints on that day of great judgment, and to be marveled at among all who believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Since we know that this is our destiny, since we know that this is what awaits us at the culmination of our lives and of our salvation, we pray for God's glory. David concludes this psalm with the restatement of his need and his plea for God to act quickly and to rescue him. Verse 17, since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. As I mentioned last week, the need for physical deliverance as the King of Israel has a very significant spiritual application in our lives today and our need for deliverance from our sinful condition and in our spiritual journey as well. as Like David, we are very needy. We rejoice that the Lord is mindful of us. We rejoice that the Lord has called us to our salvation. We proclaim with David that he is our help and our deliverer physically and spiritually. 
And so we pray for God's kingdom to come and for our privilege of enjoying the perfection of God in all eternity to be made real in our lives. Come, Lord Jesus, come. As you think about what you know to be true about God, as you think about this marvelous reality that God has called you to salvation, that he is faithful, that he is compassionate, that he is truth, that in these he preserves you, that he will defend you and guard you and protect you, we should be compelled to call out to him with all that we need, with all that we hurt over, with all that we struggle with, so that we can be made aware of the overabundance of blessing that God has given to us as his children through our union with him through Jesus Christ. Pray with me, please. Father, we acknowledge that we love you because you loved us first. Father, we acknowledge that you are faithful, that you are compassionate, and that you never withhold that from us. That doesn't mean that you don't discipline us for our sin. But how you work in our lives is consistent with who you are, and it is rich in love and mercy and grace and compassion on such undeserving people. Father, as we reflect on our individual circumstance, would we be reminded that you are there every step of the way? Nothing will ever change that. Would you draw us to call out to you, to cry out to you, to pray for your rescue? For an awareness of your goodness, would you just do the work in us that you desire to do through our hardship and circumstance for your glory. So Father, as your people, we submit ourselves to you and your authority, to your sovereign rule over our lives, and pray that you would increasingly find in us hearts that are willing to by faith follow you all the days of our life. Father, we give you thanks for the way you have loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's